Hello, hello, friends and gamers. On this episode of the Web3 Gamer, I got to speak with Kiefer Zhang. He is a game economy and monetization consultant in economics design. Kiefer has been involved in the blockchain space since 2014 and been designing cutting-edge token models and incentive systems since 2018. He has provided economic consulting services as part of the economics design team for top gaming companies like Scopely, Shrapnel, Sparkadia, to help them achieve sustainable economies and monetization strategies. I just want to say, it was clear from the moment I reached out to uh, Kiefer how how well he understood his economics and his industry, but this podcast really showed me what amazing intellect he has for these systems and how complicated they are for people who really don't work with them, work in them, or understand the importance of making sure they're really well bolstered and actually can reward the players appropriately, much like a real economy would reward a worker. So I really appreciated Kiefer breaking things down, going into perspective. I mean, realistically, if we could have talked for two, three more hours, I think we could have gotten into some fascinating philosophical discussions as well as just overall really a lot more in depth on the economics of things. But I think he gave us a really good crash course, and he really explained what he does, why you need someone like him on your team if you're trying to make these sorts of things for your game, and really just the overall importance that they have for these games and how they can make the game more interesting, more playable. Maybe they don't appeal to everybody, but I think a lot of us take them for granted and don't realize how complicated these systems are. So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kiefer. I felt it was amazingly insightful, and I really valued all the information he gave me. My name is Matthew, and I'm the Web3 Gamer. Hey there, podcast listeners. Have you ever looked at a piece of salami and thought, this should be worth more than just a tasty snack? Well, you're in luck. Introducing Salami Coin, the world's first and only economy run entirely on salami. Forget gold. Forget Bitcoin. Salami Coin is the future, and it's delicious. I used to save dollars. Now I save salami slices. Last week, I bought a new car with just 500 salamis. It's the future! And it's not just for big purchases. Need a coffee? That'll be two thin slices, please. How about a house? Just a couple thousand salami logs. I was skeptical at first, but then I tasted the profit. Literally, now I've invested in salami coin, and my portfolio has never been more flavorful. I never thought I'd be a salami millionaire, but here I am. Thanks, salami coin. So if you're ready to meet the future of economy, join the salami coin revolution today. Salami coin, where every slice counts. Please consume your salami responsibly. Salami coin is not responsible for any spoilage, theft, or consumption of your investment. Always consult with a financial advisor or daily expert before making large salami transactions. Hi, I am Matthew Simone. I am the Web3 Gamer. I am here with Kiefer Zhang. Kiefer, so great to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Excited to get into it. Yeah, so, you know, honestly, love to just, for anybody listening, get a background on you. Um, you know, where'd you come from? What are you doing? How'd you get into your style of work? Um, you know, are you just strictly in Web3? Were you a crypto fan, NFT fan? Are you all those things? Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll take it back to 2014. Um, and so that that's when I found my way into the crypto space. Uh, it was originally through messing around with a, a website called Tremor Games. Basically one of those uh, like flash game sites, play some games, get some points, watch some ads, redeem them for Steam game keys. I wanted to get some cheap games. 
Uh, but in the process, they had Bitcoin as a cash out method. And so I looked into that. Uh, I found that really interesting, went down the rabbit hole there. Um, and it was also interesting because it was kind of like a early, early version of a play to earn game where you can play some games and uh, get some crypto as, as a payout. Around the same time, also was I uh, got very into Team Fortress 2 item trading, and uh, that just got me really interested in game economies. And I was seeing them uh, kind of make this change of taking game economies seriously. They hired uh, a guy named Yanis Varoufakis, um, who later ended up being the uh, Minister, Minister of Finance in Greece. And so I was seeing like, okay, I, I really love these game economies. Um, and I'm also really like these digital goods and digital currencies. So I want to do something at the intersection of economies and crypto. Uh, at the same time, also was I uh, got influences from reading things like uh, Cory Doctorow's For the Win um, that, that showed some really positive and negative effects of uh, how economists could impact virtual worlds in a future where uh, corporations were basically running game economies that rivaled countries in size and complexity. Um, so just really sparking my mind of where the future of game economies could go, uh, but also the the power that corporations had and that the potential maybe from my perspective of how crypto could could solve that. So took all of that into a, a, a kind of pine the sky goal of I want to be a, a game economist when that was maybe one person had been hired to do that before. Uh, so got a degree in economics, um, basically to get better at trading virtual hats. And finally made my way into the space professionally in 2018, doing systems design for kind of a first wave uh, Web3 racing game. Fortunately, that died in the bear market. Uh, didn't, didn't make it to, to being live, uh, but continued on in, in the crypto space uh, with some of those same developers built out a uh, company that built out crypto casinos and exchanges. So I was in charge of kind of the incentive design, token models, uh, and that gave, gave me the first taste of messing around with tokens and incentive systems uh, in a more professional context. And finally, that uh, switched over from that to the position I'm at today. Um, so for the past two years, I've been an economy and monetization consultant at Economics Design, uh, where I've finally gotten the chance to really make a significant impact on game economies, working with teams like Shrapnel, Network Studios, and Scopely. Honestly, that that's amazing. And it's funny that um, I feel like a lot of people either seriously are educated in economics by just nature of like previous work. Like they're just like, well, yeah, I was like, I went from being like a day trader to like I worked in banking to I worked in um, like financial like grants management. Like they kind of just were all over the place to see like a good, I guess, uh, horizontal distribution of how like the market works. So it's fascinating to me that you were... Um, you kind of like bypassed all that and we're just like, no, nah, I know exactly what I want to get into. Cause I think like a lot of people in finance is kind of like, I think I know what I want to do. And they jump around a lot till they find what they like or where they feel um, like their skill set lies. And so then, then they're like, yeah, this is where I'm good at. This is what I want to stick with. This is where I can make my money, um, whether independently or as part of a, a broader corporation or um, firm. And so funny that Team Fortress 2 was really like a catalyst for you of all things was it specifically just seeing that like certain accounts or in-game items or things could be like because i mean tokenization is a has kind of been around as a term for a while but i think what people thought of as tokenization back then was really linked to your account like i think of like old diablo accounts or um old world of warcraft accounts people would have like super items and they'd be like well i can't if i couldn't trade it it's like stuck to the account but i'll just sell you the account because it's like a throwaway account for me like i'll just get a new account and so i'm wondering if that's how team fortress 2 worked 
Yeah, so it's not not about necessarily count uh, count trading. They have a pretty robust uh, peer to peer asset trade system um, in uh, in Steam, and so you were able to trade different items. It's basically all about selling uh, assets that have status. Like, yes, you can trade different uh, weapons in the game that ha- have a benefit, but really the the trading was revolving around um, kind of a rare rare class of cosmetic assets. And it uh, and focusing on that status side allowed this market to evolve like speculators um, and and maybe we can get into this later but I, I see that actually is they found a place where they they weren't they weren't harming other people but they, they people could really enjoy the aspect of trading this kind of merchant fantasy um, and have this this class of assets that uh, were valuable and it just created this interesting, type of monetization mechanic for for the developers as well, for Valve, uh, that was just uh, based on them being able to create a really interesting type of secondary market economy. That's pretty cool, honestly. Um, I did not, I was not aware of that. I mean, I'm, I'm probably thinking, <laughs> I'm obviously thinking a lot older school. Then it's weird, I have like this gap where I'm like very old school with tokenization in gaming and then just like where we're at now, which obviously there was so much in between which is why it's so helpful to talk to people like yourself who have that perspective of everything in between. But so then I, I guess I would say it sounds like maybe, I don't know for currently, but it sounds like at one point in time, like, you know, if you were going for steam keys, you definitely considered yourself a gamer. And I'm curious, like what were some of your favorite games growing up? And if you still game, like what are some of your favorite games currently? And if not, then why, why work in gaming? I guess if you don't, you know, not saying you can't do that if you don't consider yourself a gamer, but it's interesting if you're like, I used to game a lot and that's why I'm getting gaming. Now I don't. Curious why you're still in it then. Yeah, so I, I definitely consider myself a gamer. Um, it's been different phases over different uh, different parts of my life. Uh, when I was young, I was very into browser gaming. Um, and that was mostly because I my main device for gaming was a crappy laptop and I didn't have a budget <laughs> for uh, for buying a lot of games. Um, and so I, I blew through probably most of the catalog of sites like Armor Games, Congregate, Newgrounds. Um, probably went went through pretty much every genre they had in there. Didn't didn't play a ton of puzzle games, but just got a went through pretty much everything else they had. Um, and although the ones that kind of stuck with me looking back, um, and I, I didn't even realize it until recently, were some of the ones that had these. Uh, kind of interesting economic loops. Um, but I guess that tracks being that I ended up being the person obsessed with game economies. Uh, <laughs> and so like some of those that stuck out were like Frontier, which was kind of a single player. Uh, you move between different towns and you earn money by kind of having this arbitra- price arbitrage between different locations. Um, or Motherload, which was a game about mining on Mars and uh, making decisions about how much you wanted to try to extract versus the risk of not being able to, to get out in time. Um, so interesting kind of risk reward uh, decision making and uh, optimization decisions. Uh, but for, further on in my life, uh, eventually got hopped onto the Xbox 360, um, played a, a good amount of single player first person shooters. I uh, loved the uh, Far Cry and Borderlands series, um, RPGs as well, like Skyrim, Diablo 3. Great games, and these days I'm more on the PC gaming side. Though I do try to at least uh, test out a lot of the trending mobile games to stay on top of uh, what they're doing in terms of uh, monetization strategies. Uh, but most recently, uh, been loving Hades, uh, great roguelike game. 
Um, recently gone to Albion online and I'm surprised myself that I didn't get into this sooner. I am absolutely loving what they've done with their economic setup in terms of pushing, uh, pushing like robust specialization and, uh, and motivations to trade. Um, and so I'm, I think that's going to be my obsession, uh, for a while. Also testing out all the, uh, web three games that I can, uh, Sparkball from Sparkadia. They had a, they had a fun test recently, uh, my action heroes as well. Uh, so yeah, overall, I try to test out a lot of things, and it's it's been gaming in a lot of different ways uh, across across different times of my life. Sure. So if you really like, if you, I mean, you obviously really enjoy the in-game uh, economics, and if you also like, um, I don't know if you're a fan of. You said RPGs. I know not everybody who's a fan of RPGs is a fan of JRPGs. But if you haven't heard of or checked out Raven Quest, I'd be very curious to see what you think of their in-game economy, um, because they've done a really good job bolstering it out to make it so the community drives their value and i wish i could go into it more i talked to him a while ago i'm hopefully going to have them on. i talked to him in a twitter space a while ago i'm hoping to have them on again to really flesh it out um but w- the amount of thought that they had put into their in-game economy to make sure it'd be successful and people would like you said people would want to trade people would want to collect items do things and they even had like interesting turns in place where some days certain things would trade better or be more in demand based on. And I, I'm not going to pretend I understand economics as much as I should. I probably should. Um, which leads me to the question of why do you think you were so drawn to in-game economics of all things with games? You know, so many people, it's like it's development, it's story, it's character design. And, and I feel like it's few people are like, I'm into the economics or, um, you know, the way the business in the game almost works. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I think there's just uh, there's the, I guess it's kind of the concept of like flow state in gaming. Of there's there's things where you just feel really into the experience, um, and um, different people get their dopamine hit from different types of actions. And I guess just the way I'm wired is when I take some risk and get some reward that it has sort of a financial wrapping to it. Um, that is just especially uh, exciting and and uh, really uh, ticks the boxes for me. And so I, but I, I wager there there are a decent amount of uh, other people that have that kind of persona out there as well. Uh, that sort of merchant fantasy uh, type of type of player persona, which well might not be the most common one. I, I think is still definitely a interesting and probably underserved uh, player persona in general. Sure, and I would definitely say every single game out there, everyone has their favorite merchant in the game. I mean, look at—I—I'm I, a—I've loved Resident Evil Four even before the remake, and there's a reason the merchant is such a classic character that people love mm-hmm. in that game. So, but yeah, like even in Skyrim, I think about—I always had my favorite merchants in my towns I like to visit. Um, so I, I totally would agree with you on that. While maybe not not enough people are coming out of the woodwork or at the as front as you, I definitely agree with you that I think it's out there still. So when we're looking at like monetization strategies like what do you what are some fundamental differences between web 2 and web 3 game monetization strategies that come to mind for you yeah so on the web 2 side maybe breakout there's you have your um, more traditional premium uh, or subscriptions uh, so premium obviously you're, you're paying some amount up front for that content subscriptions you're paying on an ongoing basis but at this point um, free to play is uh, pretty dominant and just continuing to, to grow over time. Uh, we're seeing a lot, most of the, a lot of the, the top games, uh, if they aren't already free to play, making that switch. 
And, uh, and so as a recap of that, um, revenue is coming from the primary market sale of uh, game items or currencies. And kind of from an, an economics perspective, you're giving unlimited quantities of an item at that fixed primary market price. Um, and in terms of any, any secondary market, you, you don't really want that. You're trying to monetize through those primary market sales. And uh, if, there are, if there is uh, kind of peer-to-peer -peer trading, you want to actively stop people from making trades for real money because that's, that's cannibalizing your revenue. On the Web3 side, uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, not to say that you can't also use some free-to-play monetization, but uh, generally the revenue is coming from some limited quantity uh, primary market sales, or even potentially some limited quantity of free distribution of items. Um, and more of the focus is on that secondary market revenue. Um, or if you're selling it, you're also thinking that you're going to be able to sell it for more. Uh, people are going to be willing to pay more because they have the capability of reselling in the future because they have those, that real ownership over the item. Um, and in this situation, the secondary market pricing ends up being a lot more important than the primary market pricing because it's ver uh, because previously you're thinking about, okay, I'm, I want to make sure that the, the high spenders have something expensive that, that they can buy um, and low spenders have something that they can buy. And so we'll control that by setting prices for the, these different bundles of items um, versus on the Web3 side, you're sort of indirectly doing this by saying, I'm going to make something with a really tiny supply. And so the secondary mark market price is going to be expensive so that those whales can buy it. Um, but then I'm also going to have something with a higher supply that has going to have the lower secondary market pricing to be accessible to these people. Um, and so it's, it's doing kind of the same thing around price discrimination for different tiers of players, but it's using a different lever to do so of using item supply versus item uh, primary market pricing. And... Yeah, and so this is, again, to reiterate, you don't have to go all in one or all in other with the, these uh, uh, design decisions around monetization. You can definitely have some free-to-play components, maybe for super accessible items, you'll just sell them, um, it won't be tradable. Uh, it's easier to do kind of gotcha mechanics with this uh, if, you, if that's something that a developer wants to do, and then still have this other section of items that maybe they want to target those those. Uh, high value spenders, maybe those speculators get some sort of more economic component going, you can use uh, limited supply assets with that uh, Web3 strategy to do that. Well, it's interesting because I've seen some Web3 games now do where they kind of double dip, it feels like. And it's the best of both worlds because they're, they're making a game and they're like, look, if all you care about is playing the game, you're not into tokenization, you're not into NFTs, you don't really care about any, any of your assets. Like, you can totally play the game, enjoy it, that's fine. But then also we have, like you said, a limited number of whatever weapons, characters, um, assets, essentially, that they know are going to go for more on the secondary market. And again, the secondary market is interesting because that isn't always the case unless it, there's really hype. But also, too, they always still, you know, it's one of the first times you could say that in traditional gaming, secondary market is the bane of existence for them because they don't get any of the money from that but secondary market for most of if not all web3 games like they're like well, we get royalties depending on what it is and sell so they're like resell it as many times as you want like we can be mad that we sold it for 500 and re you resold it for 3000 but we still get the percentage of that and if it resells again for 15000 we get a percentage of that and they're like you know we can be upset that we didn't make that much but we're still technically raking in money from a project something we worked on that we, you would not see that in the traditional um gaming sector and 
I I do really like that. And I do really think it's interesting because it rewards you when I would argue a lot of traditional gaming sectors should be rewarded for their hard work, but it no longer is the case once it's out of their hands. Because And again, I, I might be butchering the economic terms, so tell me. It sounds like with traditional, it's more primary market. Mm-hmm. And with Web3 Gaming, they can capture both primary and secondary market, if I'm thinking of those terms correctly. Yeah, and, uh, and you can even add on that there is, uh, if you're talking about a game where there is peer-to-peer trading and it's not, and you there is, there is this kind of game of whack-a-mole that the uh, developers have to play of actively trying to stop that secondary market uh, trading. So that has... Uh, a cost to uh, to do whatever it takes to try to stop those uh, that activity, and so instead of it being a cost, now it's a revenue source of they're they're better able to control the secondary markets, and it also allows for different types of game structures where they can focus more on that trading um, and put and push it, which again has kind of ties into being more interesting from the uh, on the merchant uh, fantasy uh, type of gameplay. Sure, no, totally, and so then. Are there any specific type of Web3 Im- implementations that you expect to be the most successful, whether, you know, that you've seen in, in projects you've worked on or that are maybe just emerging or ones you haven't seen yet that you think going forward would be really successful if people could engage and get it in place? Yeah, so I'll, I'll point out a couple. So one, maybe I'll just continue on the same vein of, of the economic play. And the other one is uh, where it really applies to UGC ecosystems. Um, so continue on, on the first one a little bit. Um, maybe we've talked a, a bit about economic play already. So maybe I should define it a little bit better. Um, yeah. And so I think uh, with some some of these actions are things like item flipping, location arbitrage, cornering a market. Um, and so some some comparables here are games that lean like fully into economic play, like Eve Online. I think these um, things like this, and we're actually seeing basically that happen with uh, Eve Online's creator CCP Games. Uh, creating a blockchain, uh, upcoming blockchain game, you kind of have the capability to have a more hardcore, higher stakes version of uh, of that kind of gameplay with uh, that economic game gameplay loop. Um, and because you you can ha- you can set up uh, these these games that have more interesting uh, type of market dynamics, um, and in even though even ones that don't fully lean into that economic play, you can still have it be this separate synergistic component, um, similar to what we've discussed with Team Fortress 2 or Counter-Strike or FIFA Ultimate Team, where there's this core gameplay that is not interrupted by any sort of economic components, but these other people can have a more interesting experience on the side. Um, So I think those are are well-equipped for uh, Web3 uh, implementation. Uh, The other side that I think is really huge is where it pertains to UGC and incentivizing really quality content creation. So... Uh, I'd say UGC ecosystems. And for reference, you could think of equivalents of like Roblox or Fortnite. Um, and the the most promising plan I've seen for this so far is coming from uh, Nexon, or MapleStory. So uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, Nexon is basically doing a, a new ecosystem, leveraging their MapleStory IP, taking their 20 years of experience uh, running MapleStory and really... Uh, looking at how they can use Web3 technology and in uh, UGC and, and really uh, driving growth that way. And so an example there is you can bring your character between 
not just the a main uh, MMO game that they create, but a game created by somebody else in their ecosystem or even not a game. Like someone could create a fitness app and your character could be the uh, your, your motivational coach in that app. And so there's very little. And so um, with the Web3 components, there's very little friction to actually building on top of this ecosystem. They're kind of just giving the, the open ability to uh, build not only using your using the IP, but using the specific assets. So it's not uh, it's not just you're playing um, with that character. It's you're playing with your character, and that has these different. Uh, this has some kind of psychological uh, benefits that, that really tie users to that specific ecosystem. Um, and I also want to make a differentiation of with these. UGC ecosystems, I'm specifically referring to there being one entity that's handling the overall monetization. So like if you take Roblox or Fortnite, it's it's one entity that's deciding this is the quantity of items that we're going to sell. And that's especially important when you're talking about uh, NFTs. Um, because if you think about this situation uh, around interoperability, which is, is something that's thrown around a lot when it comes to these different metaverse conversations. If there are multiple different groups that are trying to monetize through NFTs, um, it's like, okay, this metaverse, I'm selling some items, this one selling some items, but I'm gonna, you can use them in either case, then you're kind of creating this competition between different entities. And uh, that, that could make it potentially pretty difficult for the content creators to actually get reasonable revenue for for their effort. And so I think the highest quality content creators are going to be drawn to the ecosystems that have the tightest control over the distribution of assets, but are still able, and they're then able to attract the uh, the best content, have the best aligned incentives uh, in that case. The, uh, the last thing you said just about incentivizing content creators is um, fascinating because I never, I never thought about it that way because I think a lot of people think of content creators until because, you know, content creators, once they're well established, can be a lot more picky with the things they take on the projects they take on because they're like, well, I have a, I have an audience. I have my time is valuable. Um, I can't just be doing everything that catches my interest. There has to be, as you said, some sort of monetization in, in play or there has to be something because, you know, most content creators, if they're living, they're like, sometimes they'll do stuff for free just to help out. But it, it becomes down to what's going to be the best use and um, greatest monetization of my time, whereas new content creators will do anything and everything if they enjoy it and love it because they're still just trying to get their name out there, trying to get built up. And um, it's funny because I have seen that with previous projects, especially um, in Southeast Asia where there's um, been some established um, Web3 gaming uh, platforms where they host a lot of Web3 games. And one of the things they have in place is based on the popularity of your game, they're like, we have verified content creators who will play your game, who will reach out to the audience, will help bring people in, help people play your game, help get it exposed. They're like, but we have to see a certain return on your end from interest, from, from you know, your marketing, your establishment on our platform and all that. Um, and otherwise, we're just not, it's not an offer. So I thought it was interesting when they, when I learned about that, because I was like, that does make sense on a tiered system to go, well, we have people who we know their reach. We know, we've, we've tested it with other games. We've seen how it goes. And clearly there's some sort of monetization or marketing uh, benefit for the content creators as well as the platform to have those people in place but um it's funny having known that i didn't think about it until you said it that way so i appreciate that perspective yeah yeah absolutely uh, because yeah if, if you aren't able to 
if you just have ex excessive competition of everyone's, uh, it's like you, it's like opening up borders to, to foreign competition as a country. Uh, the people who are natively producing in, in or domestically producing in your own country, they have that foreign competition. So as in you're, you're creating these, uh, these NFTs, but now every, someone from another uh, metaverse is just creating the same stuff, very similar, undercutting you on price. You're not going to make as much money. And so maybe you're going to go to, uh, to the UGC ecosystem where they're saying, okay, only the, the top creators are able to create this limited supply and that, that better protects your revenue capability. So yeah, definitely agree there. Can I also ask, I don't know if you said it earlier, can you define the acronym of UGC for UGC ecosystem? Oh uh, yeah, user generated content. Um, and so okay. the, yeah, this is just broadly applying to, this could be creating a, um, a weapon skin. It could be creating a level map. Um, it could be creating um, an entire gameplay experience. Um, and even broadly, like it, it could apply to um, kind of streamers or YouTube creators um, putting out, out content um, around a game. Um, so it, yeah, depending on how loosely you want to uh, stretch the definition, um, I think the, the majority of, of the point here, I think it's focused on those that are specifically creating um, uh, assets or experiences um, in a game or app format uh, that, are a, that are then allowed to leverage the NFTs and IP of the overall creators of that ecosystem. Okay, makes total sense. So I know we, we discussed a little bit about, or you touched rather on speculators earlier on, but um, what impact do speculators have on game economies and how they should be designed? Yeah, so this is, this is an interesting one because I think a lot of what we've seen so far from speculators in Web3 has been a really kind of negative impact on the gameplay experience of the gamers that they they just want to uh to play the game um but they end up um having these really volatile priced assets that are messing up their game experience so um so for example like if if you look at axie infinity and you need uh axes and you need um one of uh, one or both of the tokens that they had in order to actually play the core game experience then uh, when speculators are buying up these assets with financial motivations driving this, you uh, you can have this kind of pump and dump market dynamics that the the dump part is just going to be a point of churn for users because there's this financial component to the experience that is not what they want. They uh, they're not a financially motivated player at all. They just want the core game experience. They don't want any of this speculation messing it up. Um, and I think that really just comes down to poor uh, game and economy design. And so we can draw it back to, to other uh, experiences, like I mentioned with uh, Team Fortress 2, where you have this secondary market economy um, where, you where you're able to have people speculating on assets, but is not messing up the experience for, uh, for players. There are... A huge amount of players who don't have any of these uh, high value status symbol assets um, and Team Fortress 2 itself is uh, is an amazing game uh, and and so you can sort of separate the core gameplay and 
the monetization strategies that uh, can be set up in a certain way to uh, potentially cater to economic gameplay. And I think that it can be expanded out uh, outside that speculation to uh, to economic gameplay through um, a few a few different strategies around thinking about specifically where do we want there to be some level of economic activity and where do we not? So say there's some assets that we want everyone to be able to um, to get in order to play the game. Maybe it's a base set of cards in a, in a TCG. Uh, we want to just make sure that we're either going to make those not tradable or even if you do make them tradable, you can do some things around uh, setting price ceiling. I won't get, get too economicy with that here, but just things that will make sure that people are never priced out of getting this. It's always going to be reasonable pricing uh, or or free, depending on what you're targeting to users. So core gameplay experience um, cannot be messed up by speculators. Um, and just that being a, an important part of the initial design, um, you can do that, but you can also set up um, certain tiers of status symbol goods, uh, for example, or a market uh, marketplace loop where um, people can, yeah, depending on the type of game that you're talking about, have different sorts of economic interactions that are rewarding uh, strategy and specialization um, and can have fun with economic inefficiency, these different things that make economic gameplay interesting without actually messing up the the core game uh, gameplay experience. So um, kind of overall, spe uh, speculators have been a bad impact so far, but that's really a game design issue, not anything inherently bad about uh, kind of speculators or economic interaction themselves. And I think once we have these better design economies that understand where and where uh, where speculation should and should not fit in, um, then that's also going to help, I think, with the overall perception of uh, Web3 monetization strategies from the broader uh, gaming, uh, for, yeah, from the broader group of gamers, because they can see that it doesn't have to be this negative impact or exploitative uh, monetization strategy. Um, and it can really be a more additive experience. It's funny you mentioned being priced out because that has always been, I don't want to call it beef. It's more disappointment. That's always been my disappointment with Yuga Labs and then with other side now is I feel like there are so many people who wanted to be a part of that and play it, but the initial pricing for so much of that stuff before the secondary market even got a hold of it was still far beyond the initial affordability for the average user. And they know, I feel, and I feel most people know that whenever Yuga Labs does something, like we know it's going to, even if it's never as successful as, you know, BAYC, it's still going to have, even if it's one-tenth as successful, it's, it's always going to have secondary market value far beyond the initial market value. And um, I, I've watched the gameplay and people look like they're having a lot of fun with it. And I was just, I think maybe I thought this was going to be different with their thing where I was like, they're going to make it accessible to everyone. And then when I saw how it rolled out, I was... I'm still holding out hope. I, I think they will eventually, but it's kind of unfortunate that it still falls in line with the, um, it's like a premium experience instead of like, my belief is I'm like, gaming's for everyone. Everyone should be able to try and play your game if they want to. And so it's just interesting you mentioned that because that's really the only Web3 game I've seen where I'm like, that was so easy to get priced out. Otherwise, every other one I've seen does their best. If that happens, they go, hey, we messed up. We're going to reevaluate and we're going to make it so that the people who want to play the game who can't, we're working on it. And I always appreciate that because it, it's one, it takes a lot to admit you're wrong when it's with your brand specifically, but two, the fact that they 
go out of their way to actually work and bring it back in, I always think is really admirable. Um, but yeah, it's the only, only company I specifically can think of that has done that. Yeah, I, I think that's just a really weird strategy um, because, yeah, maybe you're trying to reward or it's a monetization for, for whales. And if you're targeting yeah, really, a really small subset of users, it can be about status. But it's kind of weird because it's, it's been established um, in, in a lot of cases that uh, people who want to flex status, they still, they still need somebody to actually flex it too. Um, if you just have a bunch, like if you go to a, if you go to a nightclub and it's only the the VIP people, they have no one to to show off and show that they're better than then, <laughs> like they're not going to pay that money. Um, I, yeah, it's kind of a comparison there, um, and yeah. So I just focusing on the the very premium, high paying users. That yeah, that's not a good way to get any sort of scalable gameplay, and ideologically, it's it's problematic as well. It's like you should be making games that are going to be uh, interesting to a lot of people and accessible to a lot of people. Um, and high, high cost premium access is not a good way to go about it. Sure. And, and I think that really falls from a marketing standpoint of people go, well, I could sell a hundred thousand of my product for $10 or I could sell 10,000 for a hundred dollars. And then that just scales. People go, why am I not aiming for the premium market? Maybe it's more work marketing wise, but I have to sell less product to get the same amount of money. And so I kind of feel like, that's where their background is, is they really, that's their focus. Like they've marketed themselves as a premium exclusive brand. And so now it kind of has fallen in line that that's, I don't know if that's what they like and want to keep steering towards or if now they're like, wish we could pull back kind of too late. Cause that's what our user base expects of us. Um, but that, that, yeah, I agree. That's, I, I don't, I don't get it, but I can see it just knowing about it from marketing. I can see it from that standpoint. Um, but I, I don't, think i always thought that in economics and correct me if i'm wrong because again i don't have the understanding you do that if you can you know as long as your markup or your profit on um cost of product is still within a reasonable cost or whatever your goal is set um it doesn't really matter how many obviously the goal is to sell as much as you can for capitalism but you know the idea is to scale it over time and ensure you're still making a profit because if you're not making a profit it is not sustainable no matter how many you sell yeah, and in for maximizing revenue there, uh, when you're when you're selling digital assets, there's uh, no real marginal cost to produce an additional unit of that. There's there's a fixed cost of of on more on the art side of of creating that asset, um, but that that sort of gets into the um, price discrimination component. It's like, yeah, you can you can make a, a good amount of money by finding by selling the super rare assets to the um, to the whale that people are willing to pay a huge amount of money. Uh, but there's also, and on, on the bottom end, there's also some free to play users that aren't, aren't going to pay anything, but there's also a whole bunch of other users that maybe they're, they still like the game, but they're not uh, super rich or super high spenders. Um, but they, they're still happy to pay some amounts of money. And so you need to still think about if as, as a profit maximizing um, studio, still think about, okay, how, how can we potentially make money? Um, and hopefully a non, not too exploitative way um, from uh, these other types of users as well. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the, the price discrimination strategy. Make sure that there's something for everyone. Sure. And would you consider, because depending on the chain, there can be gas fees. Would you consider gas fee a marginal cost? Because that's the only one I can really think of for people. Other than like you said, if they outsource and pay someone to make all the art for them. Uh, 
true that that is a cost and that is that was one of the primary drivers of why a lot of even not not even necessarily games but a lot of the nft sales um originally focused on really expensive items um high spenders because yeah if you wanted to get uh the the hype drops you were you were paying um, sometimes like over a hundred dollars in gas costs. Um, sometimes, sometimes like in really insane amount in gas costs in order to try try to get some of these. And so that, yeah, that was definitely uh, a, a marginal cost for, for even just attempting to get some of these assets. But these days, yeah, a lot of uh, technical innovation there on much cheaper gas costs. So it's it's not really that much of a consideration at this point. Sure, and uh, and. A lot of people, or a lot of Web3 games, I should say, have really moved to Polygon specifically because of those reduced gas costs. Um, that's where I'm seeing a lot of it going now. Um, not complaining. Just it's interesting to see. Um, so then, are there any like Web3 gaming trends you've seen come and go over your years in the space or any that have stuck around that you're amazed they've stuck around because you didn't think they were going to be sustainable or long-lasting? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so I'd say like there were definitely some. There have been different phases or waves of of Web three games. Um, There's some early tests uh, way way back. Um, I remember Hunter Coin back in 2014. It was actually an interesting test of being. It was it was on chain, um, and it had play to earn components of it. Of uh, yeah, basically you could go around the map, uh, kill people, and collect uh, coins that. Were, were cryptocurrency and so this this showed two things like one that uh play to earn components if you can bought them um and there's no essentially like financial barrier to entry they will get botted um and that on-chain games are often will just tend towards being a developer competition unless you actively design them otherwise and so that's that's something that we're still seeing play out uh with uh, or at least so far, we've seen with a fair amount of uh, on-chain games, like was it like Zero X Monaco or something, um, just kind of ended up being this developer playground. It's interesting, but it's not really something that a uh, that people can be competitive with. Or actually, maybe a better example. Uh, I remember I played uh, Dark Forest when it initially launched, and then I, I realized that I, at a certain point, I couldn't really be competitive. Uh, without being a developer, or like yes, there were some sort of plugins that that I could use, um, but these some of these on-chain games, you you really got a, a, an edge or needed needed to be a developer there. Um, so that yeah, some some earlier games there. Uh, another one that actually um, I think people might find interesting is there's a game called Spells of Genesis back in it launched back in 2017. So this predated CryptoKitties. Um, CryptoKitties is kind of the the more famous example or thought of as the first uh, Web3 game. Um, well, yeah, CryptoKitties, I, I wouldn't really call it a game itself, but Spells of Genesis uh, predated that. It crowdfunded back in 2015. And it was actually, and, and so it had on-chain cards. It, it was using Counterparty, which is kind of a protocol built on top of Bitcoin. And it, it actually was a pretty quality mobile game. Played it back in 2017. And it was higher quality than a lot of stuff that is still uh, the, in the maybe uh, yeah six years since then. Um, still kind of on par in terms of quality, a lot, a lot of stuff. So that was an early one that I think actually stood out um, and kind of showed that this this could be, you can have games, you can have uh, items, 
that are that are on a blockchain, uh, but it's still still a bit of a of a test and wasn't that widely uh, widely promoted or known. Obviously, yeah, CryptoKitties um, as a test, um, but then in terms of more generalized trends, might also be good to point out things that I would say aren't really games, but have been thought to be. Um, there was this uh, within within the realm of crypto. I'd say there's a section of users that have these extreme risk preferences. Um, they their risk return, their preferred risk returns are just so high that they can only find them from blatant Ponzi's. And so what I, what we've seen uh, this a trend that just it it goes it just pops up all, at all different points in in different forms of someone will create something that has this Ponzi structure, then people will repeat it until it's that uh, that kind of meta is driven into the ground and then it'll pop up later. Um, and so that particular type of trend, um, has happened so many times. There was like the, the hot potato games back in 2018, where it was just people would create some sort of skins. This was, it was not even like really NFTs. I don't think it was the like 721 standard yet, but it was like, you could buy this on-chain uh, JPEG and it was just automatically relisted for twice the price. And so you're just playing hot potato until someone wouldn't, wouldn't buy it from you anymore. Um, so that, that was the wave of it. Then it popped up in, um, some very kind of scummy casino structures that uh, their their tokenomics were basically just um, just a Ponzi. If you you uh, you get this token from betting, and then you get money from the people who bet later, and so you want to get a bunch at the beginning, and then wait for somebody else to to buy it from you later. Um, so that meant that you had meme coins, um, and then most, uh, and then tying it back to to gaming a little bit more, the the play to earn kind of wave of there were some games that were maybe at least trying to be games first. Um, I know Axie, um, when like I invested in their their initial sale back in 2018, and they they had a good initial vision of trying to create a solid game, um, but with bad economy design, it kind of turned into more of this Ponzi-ish structure, and it was replicated by some in some cases teams that were actually trying to build games, but in a lot of other cases things that were really just Ponzi's with a game wrapper. And so I want to call out that a lot of those were not really games. Um, but that is that is a trend to, to sort of be aware of that, that ties into all of this. Um, and so um, into and so getting to maybe like 2021 area, you had this you had this trend of play to earn. Uh, following that, we had a shift more towards a focus of uh, of gameplay um, and not really um, yeah, less less focus on on the economy, more on okay, we're going to build something really interesting, build it for gamers. And now at this point, we're we're a little bit more in the uh, kind of wait and see, or wait for the actual development of some of these quality games here. Maybe the last point to uh, to call out is some trends around issues with the incentive alignment around being able to sell assets uh, before you actually have to deliver something. Um, and so I, I think a fair amount of people are, are familiar with um, company uh, companies that were that sold NFTs in uh, 2021 or so. And at this point, as game studios have been really slow to deliver, or they're just kind of casually slowly going under as they're not raising more money, and 
just to point out, like that is not new. That happened in the like 2017, 2018 wave. And even like earlier than that as well, some very early like game ex- exploitation or explorations, but in kind of a worse way of uh, there had, to, there didn't have to be any real proof of it. Like you didn't have to uh, dox the team. It was just, you, you had some idea for a game, put up a, a website um kind of tied into the ico era as well but more game focused and with nfts just here's an idea for a game you don't know who we are but just assume that we're going to make it and a lot of those just like 99.9 percent of those went absolutely nowhere some of them might have been in good faith most of them probably weren't um and and so that's been kind of an evolution of uh of how these misaligned incentives can lead to a lot of these rug pulls or the retail investors kind of getting screwed um but we're we're moving in a more optimistic direction where teams are are getting a little bit more honest and sh- doing more of the work up front before asking for any money from retail uh investors which i'm i'm very glad to see after all these years is finally uh becoming more of a trend yeah i, c- I can totally believe that so then is it fair to say i don't know how familiar are you familiar with gods unchained Okay, so is it fair to say, do you think Gods Unchained kind of became the spiritual successor to Spells of Genesis in a way? Or no, were they were they actually that different? Because the reason I think Gods Unchained did so successful is they had already developed, I can't remember his name, of course, from getting um, one of the program, ma- or one of the directors on Magic the Gathering Arena literally helped build that game to make it what it is. So you're like, so you had a big helping hand in there to make it as, uh, you had a really helping hand in there to make it based off of a very successful traditional game. And so I think they had the right things in place, but once they got him in, I think that really solidified their success. Um, I've never heard of Spells of Genesis and I've never played it. I'm just curious if if you would say that's like a spiritual successor, if you even feel like Spells of Genesis was better than Gods Unchained. Uh, I, I would say Gods Unchained is, is uh, probably better. It's targeting slightly uh, slightly larger scale. It has good, good quality to it. Um, and I, I think they... They picked a pretty good genre for it. I think uh, training card games are a good or were a good target for early uh, proof of concept of uh, of blockchain ownership of uh, of game assets. Um, but yeah, I, so a little little bit different in terms of what what exactly they were going for in, in terms of gameplay. Um, but I think they they did a lot for um, showing that that you could that you could actually attract some some talent into uh, the space as well and, and create a, a game that's actually uh, fun to play by uh, more traditional standards. Yeah, definitely. And then you were mentioning earlier about, um, you were talking about how with some of the earlier games, you felt like it was more of a developer's playground and it's it wasn't as competitive. Were, were you saying there that the game, like, people basically weren't playing the game because developers were just in there like messing around with things. Are you saying you couldn't do well and have fun playing the game if you didn't have a developer's background to make the game better, more playable? Yeah. So, um, so for dark forest, it's been a while since I played, but if I can remember the the mechanics correctly, um, it's sort of, there are various different nodes um, and you are, uh, or kind of like planets, I think was the theming of it. Uh, and you are basically trying to take over larger areas, um, and that requires kind of moving uh, resources between different components. 
probably not ex explaining this that well, but there's a large part of this where if where since it's an on-chain game, there are a lot of these actions that you could automate of um, this is setting up an automated way to uh, move assets to the best location, the most strategically optimal location. Um, and as soon as you're able to can, uh, do the things you need to kind of expand or attack uh, other players there, and it's just kind of automating a lot of gameplay. And it's very difficult to compete um, as a manual player against someone who is strategically um, optimizing and automating their gameplay. Okay, I totally get you now. Yeah. Well, that that makes total sense. So, with Web three gaming, uh, do you see that as maybe gaming for the future, or do you see it more as like a unique ecosystem that's going to complement and almost run parallel to traditional gaming? I think Web three is sort of going to be its own niche. I don't think everything is going to be Web3 games um, in terms of monetization strategies, obviously like premium and subscription, they've, they've still stuck around as their own niches um, and have fit certain uh, game genres. And I, I think that's going to kind of tie in here of um, it's, it's being widely explored now in a lot of different genres. And so I think it's going to find its fit of certain areas where it works and certain areas where it doesn't. And once some of those areas have been more well established, I think it's going to kind of thrive there, maybe die off in other places. Um, and so it'll just kind of target target certain niches where it adds the most value. Um, and uh, but yeah, there, there are definitely some areas where it's not going to to fully take over. Um, one one area to point out on that is uh, a lot of uh, a lot of studios like using gotcha mechanics, which are uh, highly contentious monetization method, but profitable. And that's why they like them so much. Um, and, but if you're thinking about having a NFT output to, to a gotcha, and so um, maybe to, to clarify uh, gotcha, so this is basically same as a loot box, basically any sort of randomized output. So you're putting money in, um, there's some random chance. And with uh, Web2 games, um, you're, generally, although this varies by jurisdiction, generally not going to be classified as gambling because there's no financial prize on the output of it. But if you have an NFT prize as the output, now you have money coming in, randomization and money coming out. And that starts to look a lot like gambling. And so uh, that I think is something that we're going to see more official regulatory oversight on um, in the in the coming years. And also recently in the, the Google Play uh, update, uh, most people kind of just saw that and was like, oh yeah, overall uh, win for the NFT space of Google Play is giving the thumbs up to NFTs. But one of the um, one of the big clarifications within that was that they're very much concerned about people using NFTs for gambling. Uh, and so the, yeah, the main, one of the main takeaways there was just, you, you cannot have NFTs um, as a, an output to, uh, to gotcha mechanics um, and also can't require um, you to like have have an uh, an NFT as an input to anything any sort of randomized thing that has um, like if you were doing online poker or something um, and had any sort of financial output you can't have an a, a NFT requirement basically just financial gating so just all these things that are helping them avoid having gambling on the the Google Play Store and so that's definitely going to restrict some studios who are really interested in using those randomization mechanics. 
Which is funny because I remember, and, and to be fair, it it didn't label itself as anything other than gambling. It truly was online gambling. I still remember um, back in the day when there was online casinos that you could play like blackjack, poker, text hold them, and they'd be like, all you can put in and win out is like Bitcoin, Litecoin. I don't even know if Ethereum was in there yet. It was like less than five cryptos. And I remember a few people being like, yeah, it's great. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good at poker and I just go in and gamble some Bitcoin and come out with more than I came in. And I'm like, how, how is this allowed? Because I'm like, isn't this totally getting around the tax implications of like your capital gains and your and your um your your winnings, which are usually taxed like forty or fifty percent? I think. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. They're like, but like it's working, and I've been doing it for a while. So I always thought that was funny because I was like, huh, this is a very odd intersection of industries. But yeah, gotcha mechanics. Um, I totally get the appeal as a big fan of them when it's not monetarily involved. But I, I totally agree with you that as soon as money or some sort of gain can be made or input, you're like, yeah, it looks a lot like gambling, man. Yep. Realistically call it that. Um, so like, what do you think about traditional gaming companies getting more involved in web three? So uh, like, I know razors launched their own web VC firm called the incubator. And then like we had the, uh, the former CTO of Epic working with Yuga labs um, obviously I wish I could, I'm biking on his name, um, from magic gathering arena, working on gods unchained. Um, it's just interesting to see there's a lot of people getting involved from who've worked or maybe they've established their career rather in traditional gaming. And now they're getting more involved in web three gaming for a variety of reasons. Um, you think it's a, a good thing, a bad thing. It's kind of just somewhere in between. Yeah, I think it's pretty encouraging for the quality of games that we can uh, expect out of this next coming wave of, uh, of web three games. Um, although I, it, it's just going to depend on the, the type of company it is. I, I think companies that like existing large gaming companies, especially like publishers, um, just teams that have a lot at stake, um, like Ubisoft, Square Enix, Zynga, these are all teams that have at some point or another been like very pro web three or said some very positive things about it, made various types of plans for, uh, things that they're going to do in the space, but, they they have a lot as i said they have a lot at stake and so they've uh, at times kind of stepped back or um, slowed down their uh, their plans uh, for different types of web3 ventures um, and so i i think it's really just going to be the uh, newer companies that are going to be the first to deliver that are going to be uh, people who have traditional web2 gaming experience that may might come from some of these big companies um, they're, they're starting ventures and they fundamentally believe in Web3. Um, but yeah, kind of these these newcomer co uh, companies, but not necessarily inexperienced people um, that are really going to be the, the driving force for pushing the space forward. Yeah, and it's almost funny to see like, um, I don't know how familiar you are with like when Square, Square Enix tried to do their whole Web3 thing and it, like it went so bad, they ended up, you know, <laughs> firing the CEO over it. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's it's really interesting to think about that you can have like, you know, and I, I'll totally respect it's a different, it's a different beast. You know, if you're not familiar with it, it doesn't matter. Just, just vice versa. Like maybe you could be a web three gaming pro and you're like, ah, I could, I could design and market a traditional gaming company. And they're like, it's still a different beast, man. Like it's, it's its own unique ecosystem. Um, I don't fault them for trying to get into it. I, I also think it's a good thing. And I think it's an interesting thing, but it is fascinating to see like some of these bigger companies where you're like, ah, surely they'll be able to make the step in and maybe be somewhat successful. Maybe they won't be like huge, but like, just by having the brand recognition and the money and the team behind it. And then you see you're like, it crashed and burned really hard. And you're like, so what went wrong? Like, where didn't they get people involved that they needed to? So I, I have thought that's been fascinating to see that 
um, the indie market of Web3 gaming has been able to outperform since it's been less, it's been one, it's been less of a market and there's been less time for the Web3 gaming market. And two, it's been able to outperform a traditional gaming market, which has proven to generate in excess of billions of dollars in its industry. And so I thought that was really fascinating, but I also really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, last question I have is, uh, what advice would you give younger folks starting out on their Web3 project or Web3 journey? Yeah, I got a, I got a couple here. A um, few things that I see people mistake, make mistakes on a lot. Um, one of them is to, or recommendation is to not sell NFTs uh, way before launch. Um, if you do issue any NFTs, be really specific about uh, whatever benefits or utility that you're promising and also how long you're promising that utility for. A lot of times it's people are just writing this blank check to their community of here's this mystery NFT that is going to give you benefits, mystery benefits forever. And you're, you're never going to live up to the expectations that your community has for that. And that is not going to help you uh, from a retention perspective. Um, and uh, another one is if you're doing a token, uh, don't try to have it both accrue value and also be a currency. Uh, you're mixing up conflicting spending and holding motivations. Um, and I'd say generally at this point, if you're trying to have something be a, be a currency, lean a lot more towards uh, recommending a, a stable coin, especially a branded stable coin, if you can set up the, the legal structure to do that. Um, just having having that stability, specifically if you're, if you're targeting a mainstream risk-averse audience, I, I think it's going to be important. Uh, and also, maybe as the last one, Plan your economy and monetization relatively early. Um, it's okay. It's it's great actually to evolve your economy over time. But if you don't have a game plan for that uh, relatively early on, you might uh, paint yourself in a corner by just limiting your options with the early decisions that you make. Um, example, like uh, selling selling some item that maybe is going to be dropping later in the game, you've kind of just implied a certain value on users' uh, inputs to, to get that item. Things that are just going to make your design process a lot a lot more uh, difficult down the line, um, or you've uh, made some commitment to, to users about how something will always have this benefit, um, then realize that it's really hard to actually uh, do that and have these other uh execute well on these other design pillars that you had. So just think about the long-term implications of some of the things you're promising early on, especially if you're making promises that involve people uh, spending money in order to get something. No, that's all incredibly solid advice. The only thing I will add to that, since you were talking about a uh, token, and you, you probably inferred this with what you said, is um, if you do not understand tokenomics, hire someone who does. That is that is a whole ball game on its own to try and figure out and understand. And I've seen a lot of people who you know, watch a few hours of YouTube videos and think they have it down. And I really think you need someone with your your background to really understand uh, tokenomics, period, let alone if you're going to have an in-game economy mixed in with those tokenomics. So, Yep, I fully agree. And uh, IDMs are always open if that happens to be you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no. So, Kiefer, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate um, you taking the time to talk with me. Um, for everyone listening, I will have all the ways you can reach out to Kiefer and connect with him through all his various socials and all his uh, all the various ways he likes to be contacted. Um, I'll also include links to some of the things we discussed, some of those games. 
and yeah, man, I really appreciate you having uh, being on. If you ever want to be on at a later point, love to have you on again. Thanks so much for having me, Matthew. Really love that discussion. Well, friends, that's another episode down. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you rating it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you can rate and wherever you listen to and get your podcast. It would mean the world to us and help get this podcast to people who truly are involved in Web3 gaming, blockchain, and cryptocurrency and want to learn more and stay on top of these emerging technologies. If you have any queries, want to reach out about any collaborations or advertisements, as well as want to reach out with any improvements you think we could make on the podcast, please email us at theweb3gamer at proton.me. We would love to hear from you and take every response very seriously. Take care and keep gaming, my friends.